Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. While you're turning there, I want to read for you 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So here's an apostle, Peter, who was with Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter on, on, on this rock. I will build my church. Peter is speaking of our beloved brother Paul, who has been given wisdom, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So the apostle Peter walked with Jesus for three years, leading the church, acknowledges some of the things that Paul writes in his letters are difficult to understand. And if he's not talking about Romans 3, 1 through 8, I don't know what he's talking about. John Piper, when he preached this passage in 1999, I think that he wrote a commentary about this in 83, and he's preaching about it in 1999. So 16 years later, he still struggles with it. And not only does he preach it on March 7th, 1999, he comes back on March 14th and preaches why it is from this passage that God inspires difficult to understand passages. And in one of those two sermons, he quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is like a premier pastor, you know, you, you, you swim in certain waters, right? We're not even in the same water park, okay? And he says, back in the 50s, that this is the most difficult passage to understand and explain in all of Romans and indeed in all the Bible. So good luck, right? But here's my hope. My hope is that we can understand it. My hope is that we have the Holy Spirit. My hope is that the Word of God never returns void. Amen? So I don't swim in the same waters as John Piper and Martin Lloyd-Jones. However, the Holy Spirit lives in me too. Amen? So let's jump into Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. The most difficult passage in all the Bible. Here we go. Lord, help us. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict, inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, 
Their condemnation is just. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I, I jest, I joke, but this is serious. Your word is serious, and you've given it to us as an oracle of God to tell us who you are and who we are. And I pray, Lord, that you would give your servant words to speak. Holy Spirit, open my mouth. Give me clear thoughts. Open the minds and the hearts of those that will hear this, that they would respond in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary, opens with a hypothetical sort of a quip, sort of a humorous illustration. He speaks of a neurologist that is seeing a patient who has incessant headaches. And they do the scan, the scan comes back, and the kind doctor sees the scan, sees the the tumor understands that it's terminal, that there's no cure, that there's no way that he's going to be able to undo the effect of this tumor on this man's brain. And he sleeps on it. He thinks about how he's going to break the news to the patient. And he wakes up in the morning, he calls the patient, and he says, the scan has come back. I understand what the problem is. And the good news is that in a couple of months, you will no longer feel any pain. But that's sinking. The word for that doctor is not kind. It's malpractice, Right? The word for that mindset is malpractice, not kindness. And yet how prone we are to think that we are kind by denying the truth of our sinfulness and God's wrath and God's judgment upon sinful people. Just like the malpracticing neurologist who in his supposed kindness failed to deliver the truth, so too do you and I, Christians, theologians, preachers, teachers, parents, neighbors, co-workers, practice malpractice when we fail to deliver the full truth of God's Just judgment. Paul refuses to participate in that kind of malpractice. He speaks loud and clear of the justice and the judgment of God. Now, in order for us to understand this question that he asks first, what advantage has the Jew? In order for us to understand that question 
We have to go back to the conclusion drawn in the passage before that, Romans 2, 25-29. In that passage, Paul makes the argument that physical circumcision, which was a sign of belonging to the covenant people of God, that the physical mark, the, the representation that you are an offspring of Abraham, was of no inherent value. Scandalous to the Jew. Right? Paul says that, that, a, that a, a, a non-ethnic Jew who does not contain circumcision in his body, but who loves the Lord, who fulfills the law, will judge the Jew. When their whole take was, we are offspring of Abraham, we are God's covenant people, we will, set, we will sit in judgment over the Gentile world with Messiah. And now Paul is saying it's exactly the opposite. Scandalous. There is no inherent value, Paul says, in circumcision. Rather, a true Jew, one who is truly circumcised, is circumcised in their heart. In other words, they have the same kind of faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. It says elsewhere that, that true children of Abraham believe like Abraham, have faith like Abraham. It's not just about marking the body, though it had become symbolic of a guaranteed ride to heaven. That's what, the, that's what Paul's contemporaries were teaching. Rabbis taught that no circumcised man would ever go to hell. That's what they taught. I have no doubt that Paul taught that same thing before Christ. No circumcised man would go to hell. That's what they taught. And Paul is now saying that outward religious expression, no matter how sincere, no matter how true to form, if they do not represent inward change, affection for the Lord, transformation of the heart, is nothing. Real circumcision is circumcision, Paul says, of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, in verse 29. That, that's the conclusion that Paul draws from all of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 1, 19 through the end of the chapter, 32 I think, represents the justice of God's judgment on the world, the Gentile world, and the Jews are over there shaking their head. Yeah, Paul, get them. Get them. Then chapter 2 is all about God's just judgment on the Jews. And now they're thinking, what? Scandalous, Paul. Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? What's the advantage of circumcision? Now, we might think that Paul is going to answer that with, there is no advantage. In fact, in verse 9, he's going to say, Jews are no better off than Gentiles. But here he says, in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted 
with the oracles of God. They were given the law and the prophets. Think about this great advantage. The law and the prophets, Moses and all the prophets and David, all came through the lineage of Abraham, through the Jews. The word of God, the revelation of God. God's very word to man came through the Jews. Paul says, to begin with, which maybe in your translation, if you're not looking at an English Standard Version, you might see the word first. The Greek word protos does mean first, but not necessarily first in a sequence. So you might think, well, first, and then where second and third. The reality is that in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, you do see a list of advantages of the Jews. He's going to come back to that. Romans 9 through 11 talks about what advantages there of being a Jew. And he lists them, and there's several. But here he deals with the preeminent gift of God. The primary advantage of, of being a Jew is that the oracles of God, the Word of God, has come through them. So the primary advantage of the Jews was Scripture. Why is receiving the Word of God such an advantage? Well, the Word reveals who God is. Do you know that? That this book, it's really a library, 66 books, written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different languages. It's more like a library, but this library is the Creator God's revelation of who He is. Because He wants to be known by you. The Bible reveals who God is. It also reveals who man is. And that's equally as important because we are so prone to make God like ourselves and make ourselves like God. Bringing God down, bringing us up. But the Word of God reveals the great chasm that is fixed between God and man because of our sin. It reveals God's love and kindness. It reveals His mercy and His compassion. It reveals His holiness and His wrath, His righteousness and judgment. The oracles of God, Scripture reveals God. And this revelation of God came through the Jews. That is a great advantage, wouldn't you say? The Bible speaks of itself in Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is powerful. It's living. It's active. It changes people's lives. Paul says in Romans, 
1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for man, for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's powerful. That is why. Do you notice that the first thing I say to you after good morning, Wildwood, is open your Bibles? That is why. Because the power of God at work in this church is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the application and transformation of your hearts. You did not come here to hear my wisdom, my life hacks. You don't want to hear my life hacks. Still learning. I could use some of yours. You don't want to know my five tips for a better marriage. What you want and what you need is the Word of God faithfully expounded and exegeted. And that's what I am doing, Lord willing, and by His power. Unfortunately, much of what was spoken in the Word of God through the prophets was correction. The tenor of the Old Testament is God's people being rebellious and stubborn, and why won't they get it? And God sends a prophet, and they repent, and then they go back to the same old thing. Which is why Paul asked another rhetorical question in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? So they have a great advantage. They've been given the Word of God. So what if some of them were unfaithful? Does that make God faithless? Paul says, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does the fact that the Jews refuse to submit and love God the way that they were supposed to love God, and the fact that they rejected Christ as their Messiah, does that nullify God's faithfulness? If so many Jews rejected Jesus and deserve God's judgment as you claim, Paul, doesn't that mean that God is not true to his word? He said he's going to save the Jews. He said he's going to set them apart as his special people. And all of these Jews, look here, Paul, the Jews handed Jesus over to Jesus on the cross. They rejected him. Paul, Paul, is God unfaithful then? By no means. That, that, that is a... It is hard to express how emphatic that term is. Maybe a, a good rendering is, God forbid that we would ever argue, that we would ever think that man's faithlessness in any way impugns the faithfulness of God. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Verse 4. 
as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Every one of us, every one in the world is a liar. We all break our promises. We all fail to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We all break promises at some point, to some degree. We are all liars. And even if every one of us, if every human being to ever walk the face of the earth denied God, God would still be true. Because God's truthfulness Who God is, is not contingent upon what we think about Him or what we say about Him. The universe does not revolve around us. It revolves around God. And even if every man on the face of the earth denied God, God would still be true. To illustrate this point, Paul quotes David in Psalm 51.4. He quotes him, he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now the context is Psalm 51, let's read before that. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Does anyone remember what this psalm, what this repentance is for? You can say it out. Bathsheba. This is David's repentance for committing adultery with Bathsheba, having her husband Uriah murdered on the battlefield, and then and trying to cover it up. When he, when he can't cover it up, when he can't get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that when she's pregnant, they can argue it's Uriah's, when he, when he can't cover it up, he has him murdered. And so he sins against Bathsheba, he sins against his own family, he sins against Uriah. But in the ultimate sense, David recognizes, against you only have I sinned. God is the judge. Ultimately, all sin, no matter who it affects, is ultimately against God. God is the judge. And he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He acknowledges that God is right to judge him. This is contrition. This is repentance. God, I have sinned against you, and you are right to exercise judgment upon me. He's not going to throw up the, well, that's not fair, God. Why didn't he go out to battle? Why wasn't he out with the rest of his people fighting? Maybe he had PTSD. He's not blaming PTSD. He's not blaming loneliness. God, I was out, you know, I was out on the rooftop. I'm lonely. And here's this beautiful woman. He doesn't blame. He doesn't shift the blame. He says, God, I've sinned against you and you are right to judge me. And in your judgment, you're going to prevail. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to resist you. God is always true. Even when his people 
are shown to be liars, are shown to be sinful. King David was the chief Jew. He's the quintessential Jew. King David, he was promised that his throne would be established forever. Held up in high esteem by the Jews. And here Paul appeals to, to David, who sins against a holy God, and says, God, you are just in judging me. Remember, Paul is pointing out to the Jews, you, you have no reason, no grounds to presume upon the Lord just because you've done religious things. Look at David. And it doesn't make God unjust to judge you. Look at David. David knew that he had done wrong, and God was right to judge him for it. God's judgment is God's faithfulness. God's judgment comes from His righteousness. It does not nullify His righteousness. It does not temper. It does not distract. It does not distort. It flows from His righteousness. God is a righteous judge. When He judges the world, He will do so a perfectly true, perfectly just, and perfectly faithful judge. And you and I will never deny it. Even if we are the objects of God's wrath, we will not deny that He was justified in inflicting His wrath upon us. Thomas Schreiner sums it up. The saving righteousness of God does not rule out His judging righteousness even though God has promised salvation to the Jews, no individual Jews should presume upon the promises and think their salvation is guaranteed. The promises for, were for the nation of Israel, and as we get into Romans 9 through 11, we're going to see they stand. You look at Revelation, Israel's there, America's not. Right? Should be a, that should be a warning to us. Israel's there. The promises to the nation of Israel, God's going to stay true to His Word. Even if some people reject Jesus and presume upon their heritage and their lineage and their external religion and face the wrath of God, God is going to be true. God will be proven true. And so Paul says that even though the Jews possessed God's promise of salvation, they are not exempt from His judgment. The promise was not to an individual Jew that because you were born of Abraham and you have circumcision, that you don't have to think about righteousness. Listen to Isaiah, <clears throat> who calls for the individual Jew to return, to repent, to come back to the Lord. He says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Our God is abundantly gracious and merciful, and He will pardon sin. But who is it that He forgives? Those who repent. 
2,000 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, this should be a warning to us who have now had the gospel for 2,000 years. We've had the gospel for as long as the Jews had the law and the prophets. And there's nothing new under the sun. To think that you and I don't think and reason and presume upon the Lord the way the Jews did is foolish. We've had the gospel, the New Testament, for as long as the Jews had the law and the prophets. And they put Jesus on a cross. It's a major warning. We, we have had the great advantage of having the gospel for 2,000 years. And just as the Jew presumed upon their heritage, their family, their religious association, so too some Christians presume upon their associations with the church. My uncle's a pastor. My dad's a deacon. My mom taught Sunday school. I come. I, 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 don't, I don't reject what they teach. I don't walk out because I disagree with it. I'm a pretty good person. I just don't believe what the gospel says about me or about God or about the way to God. It is not knowing the gospel that saves a person. Any elementary school child that can read can know the gospel. Plenty of critical theologians know the gospel. But it is not knowing the gospel that saves a person. It is believing the gospel that saves a person. We are saved by grace through faith. That is it. We are saved from God's just judgment by grace through faith. That is it. Speaking of grace, Paul continues his diatribe. Remember, a diatribe is a rhetorical device in which a person is responding. In this case, Paul is responding to hypothetical cynics. Hypothetical objectors, someone who might be hearing what he has written, and they're thinking to themselves, and they're objecting, and he's, he's stating what they might object. In verse 5, he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then he puts in parentheses, now he's breaking from, he's no longer speaking as the objector, now he's speaking as, a, as himself, and he says, I speak in a human way. He, he can't even get, he can't even argue without apologizing. It's so ridiculous, the concept, that he says, I'm speaking purely from a human perspective, without understanding. The basic argument goes like this. If, as you say, God's grace is magnified in forgiving sin, if, if my sin makes God 
appear very gracious, then why does he hold me accountable for my sin? If my sin serves his glory, Paul, and that's how the objector in Paul's mind is reasoning, it's a stupid logic, but if my sin brings glory to God, why would he hold me accountable for my sin? Think about Judas. Have you ever thought about Judas? Would we have salvation if it weren't for Judas' betrayal? Not a trick question. No. And yet, God is perfectly just in judging Judas for eternity. Even though God uses what Satan means for evil, for ultimate good, in no way justifies the evil. He can't even get this out. He says, speak in a human way. This is a term called sophistry. You're learning a lot of uh, grammatical terms here. Sophistry. S-O-P-H-I-S-T-R-Y. Sophistry is twisting words. It's playing games. this This is the basic argument of Satan. Did God really say... They're twisting what Paul says. They're trying to get, they're trying to manipulate. They're trying to justify themselves. This is our, for most of it, well, for all of us, our first spiritual gift is justifying sin. Twisting the words. Did God really say? Twisting it. Sophistry. And we need to be very careful when it comes to twisting the words of God. Yeah? That's why we open the Bible and we labor in preaching and teaching at this church so that we are not numbered uh, among the sophists who would twist the Scripture. Again, Paul answers in verse 6, by no means, God forbid, for then how could God judge the world? You know better than that. Right, of course, it's not really fair. I mean, Paul is, now, Paul has had this debate over and over again. So I don't have any doubt that he has actually heard these words. But no one in the Roman church is responding. He's writing a letter. But he's dealing with the hypothetical, possible, potential objections And he just cuts it off. You know better than that. Look at where you're going. If God doesn't judge the Jews who break the law, then how can he judge anyone? If those of you who have been given the very oracles of God, the standards of God, and you break them, by what standard would God judge anyone in the world? But they knew that God was judge. Just as, Christian, you know that God is judge. It's part and parcel with who He is. He is judge. And He will judge. And if He doesn't judge those who break the law, how would He judge anyone? 
if he doesn't hold anyone accountable, then what is he saving people from? Well, God doesn't judge the Jew because they're circumcised. They break the law, but they're circumcised. They're they're descendants of Abraham. They can presume upon their heritage and their family and their lineage and their religious expressions, even though they don't love God, even though they they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. God's not going to judge them. Well, how can they judge anyone in the world? Okay, fair question. So God's not going to judge. What's he saving people from? What what are we being rescued from? Why did God choose Israel to be his special people? Why would he send Jesus, his only son, to die on the cross if there's no judgment from which we need rescue? It's sophistry. It's illogical. It's ridiculous. Paul says, by no means. R.C. Sproul argues that everyone wants to get a free pass. We think that because we haven't been judged yet, that we never will be. We go along living our sinful, happy lives Happy in our sin is what I should say. God hasn't judged me yet. Why should I be concerned about God's judgment? I'm in the church. I've been baptized. I've committed to membership. My name's on a registry. I attend church. Why should I be worried about judgment? all the while living in sin, unrepentant sin, hard-hearted sin, calloused towards God sin. Sproul continues, he says, everyone wants to imagine that because they haven't been judged yet, they never will be. They falsely presume upon their own notion of fairness and imagine that God is going to contort His righteousness to ours. I think that was my line. <laughs> People imagine that God is going to bend himself, himself over backwards and make Himself a pretzel to get around your preferred sin and your standard of fairness. This is a quote from Sproul. No preacher in the history of the world more ominously spoke about the certainty of wrath of God than Jesus. We will be held accountable for the righteous requirement of the law. Paul takes the argument one step further in verses 7 and 8. He now switches to the first-person pronoun, but I believe that he's still speaking from the perspective of the imaginary cynic. I think he's still in diatribe here. This is, where it, this, this is why it gets difficult, because we don't fully understand 
Paul's perspective, but I think that he's once again naming an objective, an objective similar to verse 5. In verse 7 he says, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So he goes from this anonymous group, our, in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, now to the personal I and my, to the individual. I think to make a point, I think that Paul wants to drive it home to the reader because, again, it's, it's groupthink. The issue with the Jews is groupthink. I'm part of a group. I'm associated with a group. And because I'm associated with a group, I'm okay And so now Paul takes it to the individual level. If through my lie, why am I still counted as a sinner? The cynic who represents every sinful person is judging God for judging him. We love to get things backwards, don't we? The cynic. Every sinner judges God for judging him. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Who are you to judge me? My sin, my lies, they make you look glorious because you're a righteous judge. Who are you to judge me? You're going to use me for your glory and then judge me for my sin? I don't think so, God. I speak in a human way. You with me? It's ridiculous. And it is the heart of every man and woman and child. What gives you the right to judge me? You know, the people that wear the tattoos, only God can judge me, don't think he will. Now, if you have that, okay. maybe, it's, maybe it's back when you are 20. But I think the most people that wear that, they don't think God will judge them. So they're going to live in sin, and they're like, your, your assessment of my life doesn't matter. I don't care what standard you base it on, because only God's going to judge me, which I don't think he will. Because who gives him the right to judge me? It's ridiculous. And it's the depraved human heart that judges God. I think this is Paul's point in verse 4. We have no grounds for impugning God's judgment when he judges us. If you noticed, I don't know if you, uh, Jacob, bring that back up. Um, Psalm 51.4. Now, again, this is why it's difficult. That word judgment is not the same in English as what we see in verse 4. Right? He says, blameless in your judgment. In Romans 3, 4, he says, when you are judged. Now, I don't want to make too much of that because Paul is speaking in Greek. 
quoting something that was translated into Greek from Hebrew, and that is being translated into English. And the word can mean go to law. So blameless when you go to law in Psalm 51.4. Likewise in Romans 3.4, blameless when you go to law. So maybe nothing. But I think the tenor of this whole passage is why the ESV translates when you are judged. And in fact, appeals to Job 9.32, which I didn't bring up. But, oh, I did. Wow, praise you, Lord. I forgot. Look at what Job says to God, or about God, as he's, as he's contemplating, making his argument before the Lord for taking everything from him. He says, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. In other words, Job is recognizing, I have no right to judge God. And he has every right to judge me. From great advantage to just condemnation in eight verses. Paul doesn't even answer their their question. He says their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. Their judgment is just. From great advantage to just condemnation in eight verses. So where do we go from here? We go to Jesus, obviously. We go to Jesus. If we know Jesus in personal relationship, we go to Jesus, hit on our knees, thanking Him that He is our righteousness. And that we're not going to stand on our own merit. And we're not presuming upon the Lord, but we are praising Him for saving us from our sin and His just judgment. And if we don't know Jesus, and I just want to be very clear and very careful that when I talk about those who don't know Jesus, that I'm including people who have been baptized, who are members of this church, whose families have raised them in a Christian home. Not all of you. I'm not saying all of you. I'm just saying that don't presume upon things you did. Do you know Jesus? And do you not only know Him, do you believe in His atoning work on the cross, that that is your only hope? That God is perfectly just to judge a good person like you. I use good in quotes. If you do not know Jesus, you go to your knees asking him to forgive you of your sin. And you do it today because tomorrow is not promised. We turn our attentions now to communion. And Paul warns us to examine our hearts, to examine ourselves, to examine our faith, to think about what is it that we understand when we take communion, when we, when we eat the bread and drink the cup. What do we understand? It's symbolic. Do we understand what it symbolizes? Do you hope in Jesus? 
Do you hope in his atoning sacrifice, in his blood poured out to cover your sin? Is that what you hope in? Or do you hope in God is going to be fair and he's going to contort his standard to meet your standard? And because you're associated somehow with religion, that you're okay. Where is your hope in judgment? If your answer is not Christ alone, then you need to repent. And you need to pass the cup. You need to you pass. You've already probably got the cup, but you need to pass on it. Or you need to repent today. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. I was blind, but now I see. Only you can do that. And I pray, Lord, that you would move among us this morning and save sinners. They would repent. They would believe the gospel. They would stop presuming and begin praising. Lord, you have done great things. And I pray that you would hold us fast. Jesus, without you, without you, we can do nothing. We need you to hold us from falling away, from going down the wrong path, from twisting scripture. We need you, Jesus. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.